0: Back in 2008, I had the privilege of serving overseas as a missionary for a little over a year. I lived in Thailand. Uh, Specifically, I lived just outside of Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, that year of my life was phenomenal. Uh, It was an incredible opportunity to get a picture of God's vision for the world, of what he was doing among different nations and different people groups around the globe. And it was great to get to be a witness for Christ in a place that really didn't know Christ. 97% of folks... Are Buddhist and do not know Jesus Christ. Really, don't know the first thing about Jesus Christ. And so, had a chance to share with a lot of folks. One day, I remember in particular, we were. Uh, it was after church on a Sunday, and we were gathered with a small group after our church. And they did Sunday school every Sunday, so you meet in a room like this, and then a smaller group would meet for discussion and kind of more in-depth study of the Bible together. Gather around this circle. And it was me and one other missionary. I think he was from. Uh, England, if I remember correctly. And then there were about 15 or 16 Thai folks gathered around this circle, Thai Christians, who had come out of Buddhism. And the question that was asked by the Thai pastor on this particular morning was, alright, everyone around the circle, when you're walking down the street in Thailand and you come across a big golden statue of Buddha... Which, by the way, populates pretty much every street corner, on every street, no matter where you are, whether you're in the jungle of Thailand or on the streets of Bangkok. Just about every corner, you'll come across a temple with a large golden Buddhist statue. And the expectation, the cultural norm, is that you'll stop, light incense, and bow your knee to this statue. And the pastor said, all right, Christians, when you walk down the street... Is it acceptable for you to bow your knee with everyone else that you are with before that golden statue? Hmm. Well, I jumped in. I mean, this is a no-brainer. You don't bow down to idols, right? Ten Commandments, number one, have no other gods besides me. Me and this other guy from England just jumped in and said, Uh, hello, that's an obvious. No, you don't bow to golden statues. It's Christianity. We love Jesus. And then I realized that no one was jumping on board with my response. (laughs) And I realized I needed to be quiet for a moment. And one by one, the Thai men and women started to go around. And the first one said this. I said, you know, here's what we do. When we're going down the street and we come across and we're with a group of people who are stopping to uh, bow their knee before this golden statue, what we do is we get down on our knee like this and we we tie our shoe. Just kind of do this for a minute, and we think about Jesus, and then uh, and then we kind of go back to our business. And as soon as the first person said it, everyone else said, "You do that too. That's exactly what I do." And I remember sitting there going, "You do what? You you bow your knee before a golden statue?" And I was horrified. I I couldn't even begin to imagine that we would take time to bow our knee before a false god. But something inside this worldview that had come out of this particular form of idolatry, bowing the knee and tying the shoe, at least didn't make them feel that awkward as Christians in their country. You know, one of the helpful things about being a Christian in Thailand is that the idols in that land shine with gold glitter. You can't miss them. They're on every street corner. You walk down the street, there it is. That's the idol. Everyone's bowing down to it. And the reality is that in our country, we have just as many idols. The only difference is they're more subtle and they don't shine the same way. Yet there are temples and altars, worshiping them on every street corner that you go down in our city that we live in. Idolatry is not a foreign thing that they deal with in Thailand. It is a thing that is being masterminded by the devil here in our own city of Chicago. The idols in our country might not glitter with gold paint, but they demand our worship nonetheless. An idol is anything that captures your heart, captures your worship, captures your mind with more authority than God. Anything that competes for the throne of your heart alongside God. The idols of career, the idols of self and ego, the idol of spouse, or perhaps the pursuit of a spouse, the idol of sex, the idol of money, the idol of comfort, the idol of parenting, the idol of ministry. Pick your idol. Idols are all around us and they demand our attention. And Here's what idols do. If they can't get you to bow your knee in worship, they will settle joyfully for you bowing your knee and tying your shoe. If they can just get you to blend in, just take a little bit of worship at the altar of comfort, tie your shoe, blend in with everyone else who's bowing down that altar, and pretend like you are no different, that idol is having a good day. Today... We are beginning a journey together as a church through a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Judges. And if there's anything that we take away from Judges, day one, going through this book together, if there's anything that we take away from this book, it's that the Christian faith cannot coexist with idols. The Christian faith cannot coexist with idols. Today, my goal is to introduce us to this book, and that's a hefty task. I have... More pages that I've removed from my sermon than I have that I got left in my sermon. But that's okay, because we'll come back over the whole summer and deal with a lot of these themes. Today I'm going to spend most of our time in chapters 1 and 2 of this book. Chapters 1 and 2 open up this introduction for us to the entire book. They set the scene. They tell us the setting and the environment of the land and the people of the land so that we can understand all these stories that take place throughout the rest of the summer. Now, a brief warning for you as we dig into this book of Judges. Judges is rated R. No doubt about it, from the first verse till the last story, it is rated R. We are about to look at some of the most twisted and depraved stories in all of Scripture. This is a book about what happens to a society when they determine that God no longer needs to be the center of that society. And because of that, it's a book that is surprisingly relevant in our 21st century. This is a book that will explore just how far humanity will go in rebellion to God. But more important than the twisted, depraved individual stories of this book is the God that consistently pursues broken, rebellious people in this book. Not only do we see the stark black backdrop of sin and wickedness as it pervades the land of a people who have decided that God is no longer relevant. But then what happens is against that black backdrop, the grace and the mercy and the pursuit of a God who says, I'll stop at nothing to love you, no matter how far and how depraved you get, I'm coming after you. That light of that love of that God will shine brightly and radiantly against the black backdrop of sin that we see in the book of Judges. So if you've got your Bibles with me, let's open up. We're going to start right in the very first chapter, the very first book, Judges chapter 1. It's going to be on page 200, and if you need a Bible, I think we got a few extras in the back, and Christina back there might be able to hand your Bibles out to you, so go ahead and raise your hand as we dig in. Judges chapter 1. Let's just kind of dig in, read the first few verses here together. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land of Israel into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Hey, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we might fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with Judah, his brother. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Termites, just kidding, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezac. All right, let's pause right there. Sometimes we jump into verses of the Bible that sound like that, and we zone out, don't we? It's kind of hard to pick up the story and kind of say, okay, what's going on? We're in a war. I don't quite get it. So let's try to take our time for a moment and gather the scene and gather the setting. We are jumping into a story that is right towards uh, the middle way of being told. As Judges 1 opens up, it says, after the death of Joshua. Well, what that means is that it's looking backwards It's saying, hey, this story we're about to read is being built off of the chapters that came previously. And picking up in Judges 1-1 is kind of like starting to watch Saving Private Ryan at the two-hour mark. You've kind of missed everything that came leading up to the big bloody battle and war scene that's taking place. You just jump into the war scene and you miss all the emotion of it all. And so I think it'll be helpful for us just to back up a little bit, try to get some footing to understand this crazy war scene we got going on here. Number one, let's answer a few questions. Who was Joshua? It says right in that opening verse, after the death of Joshua. Well, if you were to turn your Bibles back, just one page, you'd see the book previously in the Bible is titled Joshua. The title of that book is after the man, the courageous, fearless leader of a man who came after Moses, who was given the responsibility to lead the people of Israel into the promised land of Israel. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. He had to stop short. You remember the story. The Jews were held as captive slaves in Egypt, got rescued by God, parting the Red Sea, wandered in the the desert for 40 years under the leadership of Moses, promised the whole time one day you'll get to a land flowing with milk and honey. One day you'll get to the promised land. Moses didn't take them in. Joshua got raised up after him, and Joshua led them in. And under Joshua's leadership, they began to take the promised land. But he died before that mission was complete. So here in verse 1, the people of Israel, they've come through this huge journey in the desert. And they're saying, okay, we're not done. We've still got work to do. We've got to take over the land. Who is going to lead us now? Question number two, what's with the land of Israel? <laughs> That's a good question to ask. Why is it that these Israelites are so you know, gung-ho about taking over this land called Israel? Well, that's an important theme in the Old Testament, and I think we've got to take a moment to understand this. God is a God that makes promises. All through Scripture, God makes promises to his people. And if you're a follower of Christ, God has made tremendous promises in your life. And the best advice I can ever give you is to bank it all on God's promises. If God's given you a promise, hinge everything. Risk it all. Bet the bank on the promises of God. It's the best investment you can ever make. It will not fail you. And one of the promises that God made his people in the Old Testament is found in Genesis chapter 15. Today, if you were to go to Israel and ask the people who live in Israel, what's the big deal about the land in Israel, they'd open up their Bibles to Genesis 15. Here's what it says. On that day, and I apologize, I meant to have this as a slide, so I'm just going to have to read it to you. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, that's the father of the Israelite nation. To your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites. Essentially, God says, this land of Israel, where Abraham was standing at that time, it will be your inheritance for your descendants. I'm giving it to you. Why is that? You see, God had set aside his people, the descendants of Abraham. If you are a Christian today, the New Testament says you have been grafted into that family. You are now a descendant of Abraham. And these promises of land are actually fulfilled fully in Christ. But before Christ came, right, the people of God had this promise by God they would have land. And it was very important to God that they had this land because they had a specific mission to be a light to the nation. See, God, from day one, from Genesis 1-1, is on a pursuit to win for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language to worship him, to join in the fellowship that God has had with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since before time itself began. God has said, I'm gathering for myself these people to worship me from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language around the world. And here's how he did it in the Old Testament. He said, I'm setting up a nation. And this nation is going to be a city on a hill. So that when the world comes and knocks on their door, when they check out Israel, what they're going to see is a people totally committed to God, living in the joy and the fellowship of walking closely with God the Father and all the love that comes. I'm doing it through a land so that the nations can come and see them. God made a promise. And here as we open up, the people are fulfilling that promise, taking this land. Now question number three should be asked. As we read those four verses, one of the big questions that gets asked is why are they fighting these people to get the land? Why is it that they had to fight these people in order to get the land? Oftentimes when I talk to people who are skeptical about the faith, one of the most common questions I get asked is, why is there so much bloodshed in the Old Testament? Let me pause for just a moment. And I want to give a few clarifying remarks. I don't want to spend too long here today, but I want to help us understand something. In the Old Testament law, underneath Joshua and underneath Moses' leadership, God gave these laws that governed their entire life. And some of these laws governed how they went to war. What the people of Israel are supposed to do if they found themselves in a situation of going to war. And they're astounding. It's some of the most beautiful war ethics you will ever read. Far, far greater than our modern day ethics of war. They were commanded, you must always offer peace before you go to battle. You are never allowed to go to battle without first offering peace. Second, did you know if they killed a man, if they killed a man in war, they had to provide personally for the widow and the children of that man. Can you imagine that today? If every person that got killed in war, the nation who killed that man in war, took personal responsibility to care for the widow and the children. How would our nation and our world be different if we followed the ethics of war that God lays out in scripture? Those particular rules were not applied specifically to when God commanded the Israelites to go into the land of Israel. And I think there's two reasons for that specifically. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy, verse chapter 20. He says this, God says through, through Joshua, In the cities of these peoples, that's the land of Israel, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall devote them to complete destruction so that they might not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and you end up sinning against the Lord your God. God tells the Israelites, look, when you go into this land, clear everybody out. Clear the land completely. Do not let anyone remain in this land. Two reasons why. Number one, there were abominable practices taking place. What does that mean? These folks who were living in Israel at that time, before the Israelites came in, were known for a form of worship to the idols that they worshipped that was known for child sacrifice. They would take living, healthy children, they'd put them on an altar. And they would kill them before the idols. And this was taking place regularly. The wickedness, the evil, the blood that was shed for year after year after year after year. And I can imagine the surrounding nations looking in on the people that were living in this land saying, when is the God of the universe going to bring justice? When is someone going to take care of this issue Generation goes by, generation goes by, generation goes by, generation goes by. More children's blood, more children's blood, more children's blood. When is justice going to show up? And then one day the Lord's army shows up on the doorstep. And the Lord says, justice has come. Don't forget as we studied scripture that the God we serve is a God of perfect justice. We look forward to a day when the justice that is owed, the wickedness in our world, will come not through our hands but through the God of all justice who will come and say not one thing that's ever been done on this planet will be forgotten. God of justice. But the second thing is this, he says, so that you must clear them all out so that they might not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. See, at this time, God is setting up a nation state, a people for his own inheritance that will shine brightly for the whole world. And he says, you cannot begin to adopt those practices. God forbid you become known as another nation who is sacrificing their children to idols. That can't be my people. Who's going to see the love of God if that's the practices? So clear it all out. Do not adopt those practices. Well... You guys are Bible students. You know the history of God's people and how we typically do when God gives us a command. How do you think God's people did at carrying out his command to clear out all the idolatry and all the people from the land of Israel? You think they did a good job? (laughs) No, they didn't. Time and time again we come across this in the Bible, and this is important for us to realize if you're new to the Bible... The Bible is not a a set of stories about tremendous heroes that we should follow in their footsteps. The Bible is a collection of broken people who screw up at just about every turn they get a chance, and yet God consistently pursues them. God consistently says, I love you despite your brokenness. You're going to live with the consequences of your brokenness, but I still love you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. God gave him a command. He said, this is what obedience looks like. Go into the land, clear it out, set up a nation, a city on a hill for the world to see you. Let's scan through Judges chapter 1 and see how they did. Verse 4 reads this way. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezak. Great. They're off to a good start. Not bad, Israel. Then let's jump to verse 8. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they captured it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Pretty good. They're winning battles. Two for two. Judges chapter 1, verse 10. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahimon and Talmai. We'll get used to some of these names. Great. Three for three. If you were to stop after the first half of chapter 1, you'd say, hey, Israel's doing pretty good. They've won some battles. They're they're clearing these idols out from the land. They're tearing all the altars down. And then we start to get into the second half of chapter 1. Let's read verse 27. Manasseh, that's part of Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Sheen and its villages. Verse 28, or verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Catron. verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. It's interesting. They, they go into this land, and they're being totally obedient. They're riding the wave of God doing some incredible things, and they start to clear out the land. And then what happens? They start to settle for a half-hearted obedience. They say, all right, all right, God's given us this command. We've done pretty good. We've cleared out most of the idols from the land. We've we've got these towns. We can kind of set up camp now. We can kind of settle a little bit. War's been tough for the last couple years. There's a lot more to do. Rather than continue and to push everything out, God's got to be good enough with halfway obedience, doesn't he? It can't be that big a deal if we don't clear them all out. I know that was the command of God, but God certainly can't expect us to truly follow through all the way on his commands, can he? I mean, that just seems a little extreme. Let's just set up camp here. We've done a good job. Take a breath for just a moment, and the people settle for a half-hearted obedience. Maybe the thought that was going through their mind was something like this. You know what we can do? Look, I know the people are still living in their land. I know their idols are there. Here's what we'll do. When we walk down the street and we go by the idols to Baal and to Asherah, let's just bow our knee and tie our shoe. We'll live among them. It'll be totally good and we won't cause anyone any problems. They settle for a half-hearted obedience and they live in a way that God did not call them to live. Something fascinating happens next. Chapter 2 picks up the second part of the problem of the opening chapters of Judges. Let's read Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means that generation that settled for a half hearted obedience died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. The parents settle for half-hearted obedience. When they pass away, they had forgotten to pass on the traditions of the God they loved and served to their children. Their children grow up to be adults and do not know God. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they started serving the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Keep in mind serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths demand child sacrifice. One generation, one generation of a people who say, you know what, I've done good. I'm doing mostly what God asks of me. I know there's more work to be done. I know there's idols. I'm going to settle for halfway obedience. I'm just going to bow my knee and tie my shoe, not cause any issues. Next generation rises up, and they're not just bowing the knee and tying their shoe. They're bowing their knee and sacrificing at those altars. Let me take a brief side for just a moment. Parents, you have an unbelievable responsibility. The responsibility of a Christian parent is to shepherd and shape the heart and the worldview of your children. To shepherd and shape the worldview of your children so that your children grow up to know that there is a God who delivered the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and has also delivered them out of their own sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. And there are no other gods that we should ever be bowing down to. That's the responsibility of Christian parenting. These parents forgot to do that, and a generation rises up. Let's pause in this story here and just connect the dots just a little bit. As I said when we started, I think this book of Judges rings eerily true with our 21st century Western mindset and issues that we deal with. And the reason for that is that the human heart is the same now as it was back then. These stories are not myth. This is history. This is real people who are going through real lives just like you and me and had the same emotions and the same things going through their heart that we have when we struggle with following God with full obedience. Idols are just as prevalent today in our culture as they were back then. John Calvin, the great reformer, once said, "...the the human heart is a factory that produces idols." We just are constantly producing different things to bow down and worship. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you find more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God should be able to give you. And we live in a culture saturated with idols. Like I said, they don't shine with gold here in Chicago. Well, some of them do, but most of them are subtle. They're in the commercials. They're on the billboards. They're part of your life. They're hidden behind the scenes. And we bow down and we worship them. And they demand our obedience. And if we're honest, they demand our sacrifice as well. Money. Money is a very common idol for us. It it, it demands that you worship it. It demands that you serve it. It promises you all the things that God says he can promise you. It it promises to protect you. It promises to give you security. It promises to be with you in the hard times and the good times. It, It promises to make sure that you and generations after you are taken care of. And yet it's this sneaky thing, isn't it? It also asks that you sacrifice much in order to attain it. Just sacrifice your time with your family. Just sacrifice your time with your kids. Just sacrifice your time leading in your church. Just sacrifice all the other commands that God's given you. Just sacrifice at the altar of money. I can provide for you. And We bow the knee. We tie our shoe. We just take a little bit of the idolatry of the love of money. We bring it into the church with us. We say, you know, I know that Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. But let's just have a little bit of that and our God too. Settle for a life of coexisting with idols. Power, perhaps your idol is power. And scripture is clear that to live a life of honoring God, to live a life of treasuring God, is to continually grow in humility. To be giving up power in order that Jesus might be exalted in all things. We remember John 3 when John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease. Celebrating the removal of power from John the Baptist's hands. But that altar called power just beckons us, doesn't it? And every day it just tempts you says, hey, just come, come, come right over to my altar, bow your knee, tie your shoe, just blend in enough that you get a little bit of this love of power along with your love of Jesus, we're good for right now. Maybe your idol is comfort. Dangerous idol comfort is. Comfort tries to tell you that if you'll just settle for a good, comfortable life, if you'll just live a practical life, don't take too much risk on your life. You'll have a good life. Comfort promises happiness. Comfort promises fulfillment. Comfort promises that you can have that thing long inside your heart that says, I just want a good life. Comfort says, I can get you that. Here's just what you gotta sacrifice. In order to serve the God of comfort, you gotta sacrifice all those risky commands of Jesus. You know those ones that tell you to, to, to pick up your cross and carry Him? No, 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 sacrifice that. You know those ones that tell you to love people radically? Not just those who are easy to love, but you bring around those strangers that are hard to love and, and show them hospitality in your home and cook them a good meal and share the love of your family with them. You know you know the, the commands of Jesus that tell you to make those awkward situations where you tell people about Jesus because there's a real heaven and a real hell and people need to know about the love of God so that they can find a relationship with Jesus? Don't worry about that. (laughs) Sacrifice that. The God of comfort says you can have it all. Every day we wake up, we go down the street, and the God of comfort beckons us to his altar. He just says, you know what? If I can't get you to fully worship me, just bow your knee and tie your shoe. Just bring a little bit of comfort into your life. Just sacrifice enough that I take a little bit of that spot of the throne of your heart. Just enough sacrifice that I know what I'm doing. I think the devil's great ploy is if he can't make every Christian an atheist, he makes us bow our knee and tie our shoe so that the next generation after us goes all the way, bows the knee and begins worshiping. Literally today we're seeing the result of that. One of the largest religious affiliations in our country today is the rise of what is called the nuns. Those who would mark on a checkbox when asked what their religious affiliation is, 20% of the young generation, this is outrageous considering what it was only a generation ago, 20% would mark no affiliation, religious affiliation whatsoever. Parents who settle for a half-hearted obedience to God's command, one generation goes by and the children have forgot all that God has done for them. If you want to know the idols in your heart, Scripture gives us a good test. Romans chapter 6, it has this beautiful verse It says, Let not then sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice that language. Let it not reign in your body. Let it not have kingship. Let it not be the king of your heart to take over control of your passions. You want to know what your idols are? Check your passions. What makes you angry? Not just upset, but what really stirs you? What, what if it was taken away from you? What, what, what's in your life, a person or a thing in your life that you were to remove it? You're just angry. You find yourself, you can't muster up a smiling face for someone. What are your passions? What makes you sad? What if it was to be taken from you? You were to just be overwhelmingly sad. Like there's a pit in your stomach that something important, a treasure of yours has been taken from you. What makes you worried? That if it were to be taken from you and you 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 no longer say, man, man, I've got life under control. I have the security I need. Check your passions. Maybe a reverse question of that might be to ask this. If Jesus were to be taken out of your life, would you find your passions stirred? If Jesus were to be suddenly taken out of your life and your life were to continue with all the other pieces of your life, would you find anger, discontentment, worry, sadness? If not, is Jesus the king? If those things aren't true of us, are we actually depending on him? The book of Judges is unbelievably relevant for us today. Our land is scattered with idols and the book of Judges promises that in the midst of our idolatry, in the midst of a situation where we are helpless, God shows up. That's what Judges is all about. God shows up and he makes these promises that he will deliver us. As we approach chapter 3, we meet Othniel, he's the first judge, and each judge will take this cycle. We saw it, the opening little video intro that we showed today. Each story of the book of Judges shows this cycle where God shows up in the midst of his people's brokenness. Let me read to you the story of Othniel. In the midst of this landscape, a people who are serving the Baals and Asheroth, a people who are supposed to treasure God, God begins to step in. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Whenever we see the anger of the Lord, know that his anger is actually a picture of his love. He has a righteous anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years they were in slavery but then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel one who saved them Othniel the son of Kenaz Caleb's younger brother and the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel he went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and, and his hand prevailed over Kishon Rishatayim so that the land had rest for 40 years. And listen what happens next. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Capture this. The people cry out. In the midst of their brokenness, God allows them to fall in the total depravity of their own sin. They become slaves to the very idols that they had been bowing the knee to. They become put under the yoke of slavery, under a wicked king. His name literally in the Hebrew means doubly wicked. He was a wicked king and he enslaves them. And after eight years, they finally cry out, God, this is too much. That's a cry of repentance. That's a cry of desperation. God rejoices in that cry. God rejoices when we realize the burdens we brought on ourselves because of our own idolatry and we cry out, God, I can't take it anymore. And he sends a deliverer named Othniel. And Othniel saves them from the hand of their persecutors. But watch this the salvation that Othniel brings, how long does it last? 40 years. And then what happens? Othniel dies. Let's pick up the very next verse, verse 12. As soon as Othniel dies, the people of Israel, what do they do? They did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the cycle picks up again. The cycle picks right up again. How many of you know the cycle of brokenness in your own life? How many of you know that sin is sticky? That sin has a way of latching on to you and it will not let you go? How many of you know what it's like to take two steps forward in your victory over sin and then ten steps backwards and feel like you just can't get out of this cycle of brokenness? You know that Christ is able to give you total victory. You know that God's called you to a land without that idolatry in your heart, and yet you find yourself in cycles. Every time you get victory, you look forward and you're ten steps back from where you were a month prior. How many of you know when you look out at the city of Chicago, when you look at the violence in our city, that sometimes it feels like every time we take one month forward in our victory over the violence in our city, we then take three months backwards and we begin to cry out. There gets this place in our heart where we literally have to get to a place where there's a desperate crying before God. Until we recognize the situation we're in. That idols are wreaking havoc in our life and enslaving us, and that's reality. And until we actually cry out to God, God is not prepared to actually heal your heart because he still needs to reveal to you just how prevalent those idols are in your life. Sin is sticky. It sticks with us. What we need is not just a deliverer who can deliver us from wicked kings, but we need a deliverer who can clear the idols out of our heart. That's where Othniel failed. Othniel was a strong, mighty warrior who followed God and helped his people get deliverance, but he couldn't actually deal with the issue of the heart. And the good news of the New Testament is that the greater judge has come. We don't live before the cross of Christ. We live on the other side of the cross of Christ. Jesus is the greater judge. He is the judge that's come and delivered us from the greater enemy, not just a mighty king, but a great, evil devil who has betrayed the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and has been sucking us into his ploy since the very beginning. Ephesians 4.8 tells us that Jesus Christ took captivity captive. Here's what that means. That as Jesus hung on the cross, the devil thought he had him pinned. The devil thought he had him beat. He put his hands on a cross, he put his feet tied, and he had him pinned. And in that moment, as Jesus was hanging on a cross, pinned, held captive... Under Satan's attempt to hold him captive, Jesus was actually taking Satan captive. Through the defeat of death, Jesus in that moment flipped the roles. And he took Satan captive. Jesus actually defeated death. Jesus took captivity captive. And when we place our faith in Jesus, what that means is that death and all of its consequences have been defeated in full in your life. Idols have no claim to you in Christ. The best the devil can do is throw an idol in front of you and say, hey, that looks pretty tempting, isn't it? And then a Christian says, yeah, but I have the victory of Jesus Christ. The greater judge has come. He's defeated it once and for all on the cross. If you are living your life in such a way right now that you have never encountered Jesus Christ and you find yourself today stuck in cycles of brokenness and you don't know how to change it, God, through the merciful love of Jesus Christ, has showed up. And the work that he's accomplished on the cross is to give you the full, meaningful, beautiful, God-glorifying life where the idols are taken out of your heart. You are not a victim to idols. In Jesus Christ, idols are actually defeated, and he can change your heart and allow you to actually live a life of victory over the idols in your life. As a way of application today, I want to invite you Some of us are stuck in cycles of sin. We look at the book of Judges and we're trying to figure out what do we do with this. And and, and if we take an application from today, it's this. If you are stuck in a cycle of sin and you don't know how to move forward in your Christian faith, if you've been coming around church for years and it seems like every day is the same day as it was for the last decade in your faith and there's been no spiritual growth, Jesus invites you to cry out to him. To cry out somewhere from the depths of your belly and say, God, I can't do it. I need you to show up and deliver me from this. And here's the sweet, precious news of the book of Judges. God hears your cry, and he has sent you a judge to fully deal with the idolatry that you're stuck in. Let me pray for us.